what a good day today is. It's the Lord's Day, we had a baptism, we have the Lord's Supper, and now we come to a text where we read about the death of Jesus, a somber text, and yet still a text which we might find great joy when we understand what it means to us. Let's read from Luke 23, verses 44 through 49. As we'll read about the death of our Lord, the most important and joyous death in all of history. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light faded, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had happened or what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures. We are so blessed to have your word in English. We are so blessed to have Bibles that we can hold and read and know and devour. I pray that we would be encouraged to constantly come to your word and find joy and hope and innumerable treasures. And one of those greatest treasures that your word reveals to us is your son, Jesus. And that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins, that he died the death that we deserve to die and has given us his righteousness. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this past week, I was researching best-selling books, namely looking for the best-selling books of all time, only to find out that, no surprise, most of these lists are biased. In fact, most of them exclude any and all religious texts, which isn't entirely surprising and for most purposes isn't necessarily wrong because, of course, Bibles are going to sell better than other things. Of course, religious texts are going to sell well, as they should. And so in some of those lists, they're just eliminating outliers, and I, I kind of get that, but still doesn't really help. And yet, in the midst of all of this, there is one book I was looking for, a very specific book, and a novel, in fact, and it seems that this novel became a bit of a casualty of the exclusion of religious texts. It's one of the best-selling books of all time, estimated they have sold 250 million copies. It is a book that has been in publication <coughs> consistently. It has never gone out of publication since 1678. And yet it was not present on most of these lists. It was translated into 200 different languages. It's one of the most um, 
it's, sorry, it's one of the earliest novels in English, and so many consider it to be possibly one of the first English novels even. And the book is one that many of you have read, some of you may have never heard of. Um, it's, the book is The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. It's been adapted into various film adaptations, and um, one even, I think, in 2017 that was really well done. So some of you have likely read of it, but others of you may never have heard of it. It was reported in... I mention all of this, though, to really bring up a statement that was made about the book and about the author by the 19th century Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon. He's known to have read The Pilgrim's Progress as early as six years old and throughout his life read it over a hundred times. And so I mention all of this, though, to give a context for a quote that Charles Spurgeon spoke about John Bunyan. Having read his work over a hundred times, he likely knew him pretty well in a sense, as much as you can someone that you're 200 years removed from. And Spurgeon, in his autobiography, wrote this of John Bunyan. Read anything of his, and you will see that it's almost like reading the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with Scripture, and through his writings, and though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give his Pilgrim's Progress, the sweetest of all prose poems, without continually making us feel and say, why this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. Let me repeat part of that. This man, John Bunyan, is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, his, but, his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. What a remarkable example and legacy that we have in Bunyan, that someone would look at him 200 years later and say that the very blood he bleeds is the Bible itself. And if we think about the context of which Bunyan was writing The Pilgrim's Progress, he was in prison, and he was arrested for preaching, oddly enough. He was preaching out of accordance with what the state said at the time, Anglican, so only, you could only preach if you were Anglican. He was not Anglican. And so him preaching outside of that put him in prison for 12 years. And it was during this time in prison, in his suffering, that he wrote this great story, The Pilgrim's Progress. Which the story itself, if you're not familiar with it, is essentially the story of the Christian life, the story of Christian discipleship, where this man leaves his home in pursuit of truth, in pursuit of the celestial city, the dwelling place of God, in pursuit of heaven. And his life is full of hardship and trial, and yet it's full of comfort and the gospel and of belief, and it is a wonderful story. And yet, that statement that Bunyan was celebrated for having bibline blood, I think is more appropriate that when we look at that statement, we would see that all Bunyan was doing there was modeling what Christ modeled first. 
It seems obvious, of course, but if we really think about how often Jesus' words are quoting Scripture, we'll see it very clearly. The text we're looking at today, Jesus is quoting a psalm. Last week, we looked at Jesus and his life referencing and quoting the psalms. And so much of Jesus' words are quoting the Old Testament and doing so in a manner that shows us how it all points to him. And in a few weeks, as we get to the end of Luke, after the resurrection, we'll see that Jesus on the road to Emmaus opens the scriptures and shows his disciples how all of it has always pointed to him. And as we see what Luke illustrates here is Jesus' final words. They're the words of scripture. Jesus is quoting from a psalm. As Jesus Christ is bleeding out on the cross, he is quoting scripture. And so even more so than Bunyan, Jesus was so saturated with the scriptures, knew them so well, that in his moments of trial and suffering, what he breathes out are the words of God. And what a wonderful reminder for us. And before I even get into the actual nature of the text, what a wonderful reminder for us that we should cherish and love the Bible that we have. And yet as we look at this text, we see that there's, there's a lot more than that. There's a lot in this text. There's a lot of, of references to the Old Testament. There's a lot of, of pointing back to the prophets, of pointing back to the Psalms, of pointing back to the importance of understanding the layout of the tabernacle and of the temple. And yet, I heard something recently that said, I think 20% of Christians read their Bible regularly. And yet, how much of a blessing we have to have a plethora of good translations that are in languages we can read and understand and we can rejoice in knowing that we have the Word of God and we should cherish it and know it. And I think this text today shows us very clearly how in moments of trial and in suffering we should rest on the Scriptures. So in this text, the first thing we see is it's about the sixth hour, which is noon. So it's the middle of the day. It's noon, which normally noon, the sun is right in the middle of the sky. But the first thing we read that happens is the sun fails to shine. Darkness comes over the land. And not just for a moment, for three whole hours. We have some remarkable events surrounding that. Following this darkness, the curtain temple, or the temple curtain tears. Jesus breathes out his last, and this Roman soldier confesses Jesus' innocence. It's a remarkable text. We see the creation, the curtain, and the centurion all making a declaration about what Jesus has done. And in the first instance, in the creation, in the darkness falling upon the whole land for three hours, from noon until 3 p.m., there was darkness. And how fitting is it that Jesus, the light of the world, is slain and the sun stops working. Creation itself is groaning at the death of Jesus. And although some have tried to explain this as an eclipse, it's quite different than an eclipse. So 
And I mention this to show that it's a remarkable event. It wasn't something that can be explained away with modern science, because what we know of modern science and eclipses demonstrate this is completely different. First of which is it was a full moon. Eclipses, solar eclipses don't happen during full moons. Lunar eclipses do, but that's not what's occurring here. And we know that it's a full moon because that's how Passover was dated. Passover occurs on a full moon. It's always on a full moon. That's how they did their calendar. And solar eclipses, again, are impossible during a full moon. However, even so, eclipses normally last between a few seconds and seven minutes. This was three hours. So modern scientific definitions do not match the description of this astronomical event that occurs here. Darkness, though, in the Old Testament often conveys judgment. We see this various places in the Old Testament. When you think about one of the first instances of darkness in the Old Testament, you'd likely think back to the Exodus, to the ten plagues, where darkness falls upon the land. Then in Joel 2, or verse 2 of chapter 2 of Joel, Joel writes, A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people, there like has never been before, nor will be again after them throughout the years of all generations. So the book of Joel is speaking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is this event of God's wrath. And there's various instances and things like this where the day of the Lord is often an indication of the Lord pouring out his wrath on his people. And so Joel is doing this in response to a locust storm. And this locust storm is an illustration of God's wrath that these locusts have been sent upon these people for their unfaithfulness. We also see this language of darkness used in the book of Revelation. In chapter 8, darkness is shown again to be God's judgment. So there's this darkness is occurring as Jesus is dying, that God is showing his judgment on the one hand being poured out on his son, Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, there is judgment for those who've crucified him. And yet simultaneously occurring, as, as Luke reports it to us, as we see here in verse 45, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So at the same point, really simultaneously, three things are happening. The darkness is falling upon the land, the curtain is tearing, and Jesus is uttering his last words. And so this curtain... We've talked about it a lot in Sunday school, and I even last week I mentioned the curtain a little bit in relation to the Day of Atonement. There was this curtain that we see in Exodus 36, 35, as well as in 2 Chronicles 3, verse 14, were given the illustration for how the curtain's decorated. They tell us that the curtain was decorated with blue and purple and crimson or scarlet fabrics, and fine linen. And he, the one constructing the curtain, worked cherubim on it. So this curtain has these two angels on the curtain, which draw us back to the garden. Whereas the garden where two cherubim were set at the outside of the garden to prevent people from entering. This curtain functions as a, as a keep out sign, saying you can't enter back into the garden you can, where God dwells and you cannot enter into this innermost chamber of your own free volition. You cannot enter into the presence of God in your own sins. 
And now, the curtain illustrations we get from Scripture are from the tabernacle. We get the illustration from when the temple's constructed in Second Chronicles. And with a little bit of the history of Israel, so that, second tem- that first temple was destroyed. And then there's a second temple that was rebuilt. And with the rebuilding of the second temple, there was another curtain that was, that was created. All the curtains carry the same description and carry the same decorations. Josephus, in his work in the wars of the Jewish people, writes about this curtain, and I'm going to read from this for a second, for what he writes about it, because it really gives us a great picture of what's on this curtain. Josephus writes, it was a Babylonian curtain, embroidered with blue and fine linen and scarlet and purple, so same colors that were, what we read from in Exodus and Second Chronicles, and of a contexture that was truly wonderful. Nor was this mixture of colors without its mystic, mystical interpretation, but was a kind of image of the universe. For by the scarlet there seemed to be enigmatically signified fire, and by the fine flax the earth, by the blue the air, and by the purple the sea, two of them having their colors and the foundation of its resemblance. But the fine flax and the purple have their own origin of that foundation. The earth producing the one and the sea the other, the curtain had also embroidered upon it all that was mystical in the heavens, excepting that of the 12 signs representing living creatures. So to sum that all up, there's something really important he says in the middle of that, that it was a kind of the image of the universe. And though Josephus here, and Josephus being a Jewish historian in the first century, goes on much greater detail than Moses or the writer of Chronicles does, Josephus shows us that the curtain itself was decorated to look like the starry heavens. It was an image of the universe. So the one looking at the curtain would be reminded of the dwelling place of God as the innermost chamber was where God dwelt on that day of atonement. But the angels on there reminded them, you cannot enter in. There were various curtains during this temple period. One rabbinic tradition stated there were as many as 13 curtains in the temple. But I mention all that to say there's only one curtain of significance. There was a curtain going into the chamber where the priest would enter, and there was a curtain going into the chamber where only the high priest would enter. And really, the only one that had the most significance was that innermost chamber. And it has a significance throughout the scriptures. And this innermost chamber of the temple, as I mentioned last week, it's where the high priest would enter into that one day of the year to provide sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the people of Israel. The innermost chamber was to be an earthly model of the throne room of God. And it was closed off to everyone but the high priest that one day of the year The curtain told them to keep out because their sins had made them, sins had created a separation between them and their God. And this curtain declares to them, because of their sin, they cannot dwell among him. Because God's justice, God's wrath, and God's holiness demands judgment of sin. And that was even what was just in the video before the sermon. As for the children's Sunday school lesson is Sodom and Gomorrah, that God must judge sin. And what a wonderful title for that lesson, the judge judges justly. So when the curtain is torn, 
the heavens are breaking open. If the curtain's decorated to look like the heavens, the heavens are being split. And we can see this a lot more clearly in Mark's gospel. Because Mark, the word that's used for split in Mark's gospel is used twice. The first time is in Mark chapter 1, where Mark writes that the heavens were split open and the voice of the Father says, this is my son. The second time that Mark uses this statement is when he is recording the same event that we're reading here, where the, heaven, where the curtain splits open and the centurion says, truly, this was the Son of God. In Luke, or sorry, in Matthew, Matthew uses the word similarly, only using it twice. He writes, the curtain tears and the creation splitting, rocks begin breaking, and an earthquake occurs. And then Luke here connects this curtain tearing with the sun going dark. The description of the heavens in connection with the sun going black is by no means insignificant. The heavens split open as the curtain tears and the sun fails. The tearing of this temple curtain signals the end of the Jewish religion and an opening of the access to the Holy of Holies for those who place their faith in Jesus. In Hebrews 9, we read, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his blood. So the writer of Hebrews here, and I'm not done reading from there, is describing the Day of Atonement and showing how Jesus is better than that Day of Atonement. Thus securing an eternal redemption. For if by the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then a chapter later in Hebrews 10 and verse 20. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So in Jesus' death, the curtain, the keep out sign is ripped up. And a way is opened up through Jesus Christ. So Jesus on the cross enters the most holy place offers sacrifice on our behalf. He has once again opened the way to the presence of God. But it's not open to all. The path is narrow, and it is only through him. Jesus says this in the Gospel of John in chapter 14. No one comes to the Father except through me, and that he is the way and the truth and the life. And in him alone, People are able to come to the Father. People who were once cut off are now welcome to come to the Father. And yet, it's in this same moment that Jesus utters his final words. And he quotes Psalm 31, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Psalm 31.5 says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Here from the cross, Jesus is breathing out Scripture as his final words, confessing that his life, his spirit, is in the hands of God. 
And yet, it is in that moment that we sinners find our redemption. The psalmist writes, Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O faithful Lord. And yet it's because into the Father's hands Jesus commits his spirit that we are redeemed. And yet Jesus in this moment and in this utterance is confessing that he is trusting in God and that the direction by which will God will carry him. For the Lord is our rock and our fortress. And yet consider what Christ is doing in his moments of suffering. Here he quotes scripture. And this isn't the only instance. When we think of Jesus in the garden quoting scripture, when we think of Jesus in his temptation in the wilderness, as Satan is tempting Jesus, Jesus responds by standing and trusting in the promises of God, by responding and quoting scripture back to Satan, the adversary in temptation there are many things that we ought to glean from this text. But one thing that I think is abundantly clear is if we desire to be like Jesus, as every Christian should, then we should desire to know the scriptures, that we will quote them in our moments of suffering, that we will quote them in our moments of trial. But we can't do this if we're not memorizing scripture, if we're not reading our Bible. And upon all of these things that have just happened, the darkness on the land, the tearing of the curtain, and the final exclamation, the Lord Jesus, centurion makes his confession. It's a significant confession that Jesus' death on the cross, as I mentioned a moment ago, it's the, the the most significant event in history. And I say that kind of tied with the incarnation and the resurrection. But yet the first person to look upon the death of Jesus and to connect that with the sun's failure to shine and the torn curtain is a centurion. And yet on the other hand, the way in which Luke records this, his confession is different than Matthew and Mark's. Matthew and Mark write that the centurion says, truly this man is the son of God. But the centurion here says, certainly this man was innocent. And in a sense, we could say that they mean the same thing, because ultimately, they do. But there's a little more than that. Because as we've seen in recent weeks, it's a pretty common theme for the innocence of Jesus to be declared. And so the centurion here, seeing the sign above Jesus' head, is confessing he's not guilty of that crime. He's not pretending to be the king of the Jews. He indeed is. One commentator paraphrases what the centurion is saying and teases it out to say, in a sense that the soldier is conveying, Jesus was a good man and quite right in calling God his father. If that's what the centurion is saying, then he's saying the same thing here in Luke as he's saying in Matthew and Mark, and I think that's reasonable. But Luke, of course, as I mentioned, has been drawing out this theme of Jesus' innocence. He shows this with Herod declaring Jesus innocent, He shows it with Pilate. Both of them say they found no guilt in this man. The thief on the cross declares that Jesus is innocent. And now a third person upon seeing, it's really a fourth person, but, and now another person seeing in which the manner in which Jesus died and how the earth around him has responded confesses his innocence as well. It's not merely a legal statement as with Herod and with Pilate, but it's a confession of worship 
alongside a declaration of Jesus' perfect righteousness. And while the centurion has the most remarkable response that we see in the text, it's not the only response that we're told about. As we look at what the centurion says, I'm going to read that again. Now, when the centurion had saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man is innocent. And again, a reminder, the centurion's a Roman soldier, and his response is worship and confession of Jesus' innocence and Jesus' sonship. There's other people around there as well. There's this crowd, which we've seen the crowd being far from exemplary. They also saw what happened, and they returned home beating their breasts. Luke is intending the reader to see the centurion and the crowd and to understand there's quite a difference in what they're seeing. They're both looking upon the cross of Christ, and upon hearing and seeing the gospel, there are two responses. Now, the phrase here, beating their breasts, might be a little confusing. It's not a response of triumph or victory, as we might think. It's not in the same sense of a warrior or a pro wrestler or Godzilla or King Kong beating their chest, slamming their fist against their chest in celebration over conquering their enemy. But rather, as we've seen in Luke 18, it's an expression of sadness and of guilt. The spectators who came to witness the death of Jesus left not with fulfillment over their sight of bloodshed or gruesome entertainment, but they leave with sadness and with a sense of guilt. And yet, it seems that this is what sets the stage for a mass conversion at Pentecost. Where a few weeks later, Peter is speaking to these people and he tells them, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. They heard this and they were cut to the heart. They asked Peter what they are to do. It's from Acts 2, 36 through 38. And Peter responds to them to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches the gospel to them and tells them to repent and be baptized. 3,000 souls were added to their number that day. Just a few weeks after witnessing this and leaving, beating their breasts, they hear this gospel message and they repent and they are baptized. And what a wonderful thing that we can celebrate baptism today as well. And yet there's another group here that Luke gives reference to and he mentions these women that followed him from Galilee. They're not the same women that are referenced before as the daughters of Jerusalem just above. These are women who had followed Jesus since the beginning of his ministry, starting from Galilee. Luke doesn't say much about them here. They come up, they'll come up next week, though. But aside from that, they state, he states they stood watching from a distance. And we'll see how that plays out a little more. What we see here is there are three kinds of different witnesses here, though. The crowd, the centurion, and these followers. These audiences respond in different ways. The centurion responds in worship and confession. The crowd beats their breasts, having been overcome with guilt. The curtain tears, the sun stops shining. Everything about this narrative shows us that the death of Jesus is significant. So significant that creation responds. 
so significant that those who put him on the cross respond. So significant that a man who has very little context for the king of the Jews looks and praises God. Because the sinless Savior died. God took on flesh so that we might be provided a wonderful, perfect substitute for our sins. The wrath of God is poured out on Jesus so that we might be redeemed. A wonderful confession that Paul tells us in the book of Romans, there is no condemnation left for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful thing for us to cling to today. And our entire service today, and ultimately the entire life of the Christian, but our entire service today is based upon the fact that in the death of Jesus, something remarkable happened. A few moments ago, we celebrated baptism, a reminder of us being united in the death of Jesus. And for those who believe in Jesus, you've died with him, but you've been raised with him. Your sins are forgiven because Jesus died as a spotless sacrifice. And thus, you ought to die to sin, which means you must repent of sin. You cannot continue on sinning. You've been made alive in Christ. Your old flesh outside of Christ was dead, destined for hell. But Jesus' death tears up the keep-out sign and provides us a way back to the Father for all those who profess faith in Christ Jesus. And yet in a few moments... We're going to come to the table and observe the Lord's Supper, another instance in which our, our service points us to 